This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. They had the pleasure of sitting down with Dave Feldman. For those that have been in the low carb community for a while, you probably have heard of him. When it comes to cholesterol, Dave Feldman is the founder of cholesterolcode.com and he has so much information there about cholesterol and talking about all different facets of cholesterol, especially on a low carb diet. Dave Feldman is a senior software engineer and entrepreneur, and he began a low carb, high fat diet in April of 2015. Dave found that his lipid numbers were going up on his diet and wanted to understand why. And as an engineer, he spotted a pattern in the lipid system that's very similar to distributed objects and networks. Dave is the founder of CitizenScienceFoundation.org, where they support more research into cholesterol and lipids. And he's also the founder of Own Your Own Labs. Own Your Own Labs is a do-it-yourself blood testing where you can pick your blood test that you want to see in an a la carte option. Part of the proceeds goes to the Citizen Science Foundation. Dave has done extensive research, N equals one, in terms of his own lab testing for many of the people to just understand what is going on with cholesterol and even the whole terminology of lean mass hyperresponders. If you have a very high LDL, your HDL is above 80 and your triglycerides are under 70, there is a definition for that, and that is called the lean mass hyperresponder. And in this conversation, Dave talks a lot more about that. So is LDL safe on a carnivore diet? There is nuance to that. And in this conversation, we get into all of that. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for joining me. If you can introduce yourself. Uh, sure. So my name is Dave Feldman. Actually, I'm a senior software engineer, but I became obsessed with lipidology about seven and a half years ago. Um, after I'd gone on a ketogenic diet and my cholesterol shot through the roof through a series of experiments, uh, alongside now working with many MDs and researchers, we've developed a model that might explain why that happened. And uh, we're also, of course, as I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, in the midst of some very active, very exciting research around this topic. Yes, yes. I know you are the person to turn to when it comes to all things cholesterol. Um, if, you know, as you were 
sort of alluding to, if I'm eating a carnivore diet and my cholesterol's going up, should that be something I worry about? And maybe we can just talk about the basics of what is HDL, LDL, lipoproteins, et cetera. Sure. So first off, while it's a bit of an unsatisfying answer, I often will tell people the, sh- the short answer is, I don't know. But the good news is, is that we're actively finding that information out now. We're, we're gathering data on uh, those folks who not only see their LDL cholesterol go up, but are predominantly, I mean, many lean mass hyperspotters are on a very low carb diet and many on a carnivore diet, sometimes for medical reasons. As far as just kind of unpacking this, it's true. It does get a bit complicated, but I've been trying to work on my stock speech with those people in the lay audience, right? But the model I talked about a little bit earlier, basically the gist of it is, is that the cholesterol that we see that rises when being powered predominantly by fat is primarily due to us needing to traffic it more around the body. So if you're being powered by fat, you probably need to move that fat between not only coming out of your fat cells, but in bringing them back to your fat cells. And those come on these vehicles, these lipid carrying proteins. Fat is a lipid and there's a kind of a giant protein complex called a lipoprotein that carries it both to your fat cells like adipocytes and to your muscle tissue and other oxidative tissues to make use of. And in a way, what I like to say is it's like cholesterol sort of ride shares with that fat that you're powered by. But because it's not used as frequently as the fat itself, it's kind of the passenger that remains in that vehicle, in these lipoproteins, such that we can then detect it at higher levels because of the greater amount of the traffic there being you know, more boats, if you will, in the harbor. That's why we end up seeing a lot more. Yes, since we use fat as fuel more when we are not eating as many carbs, but is that a concern, especially when it comes to heart disease? Uh, I mean, I want to be a good scientist and say we don't know what we don't know. Here's the catch though, Judy. The, The problem is, and I'm a bit vocal about this, is almost all of our data, really all the data that I'm aware of, where we're actually finding this association between having higher levels of cholesterol and heart disease, or for that matter, having, say, higher levels of saturated fat and heart disease, it tends to come from two kind of categories of populations. Either one, there's from populations who have other um, potential habits that can be associated with not great behavior because they tend to be pushing against typical dietary advice. I'm sure you, like me, have grown up over decades hearing things like, you know, skip the steak and have a salad. And so naturally, a lot of my family who were preferring steak over salads also tended to be the types to smoke and drink and so forth. This is just an issue with epidemiology, is that if you find this association with people having a lot of, uh, you know, red meat and saturated fat, if all of us as a population, if we've been hearing over our life, hey, that's bad, you shouldn't have it. And the folks who are more interested in having better healthy habits, they tend to, um, they tend to try to, you know, uh, keep away from that. That ends up being an issue. Now, the other category, this is where it gets a little more interesting. The other category is when we look at populations for which uh, taking measures to improve on diet or to, in particular, improve on uh, lipid levels, one of my frustrations is many of those have some form of dysfunction in lipid metabolism. And I know that gets a little bit technical, but basically 
I'm always going to start with the question of, do the cells of the people that you're looking at, are they normal? They don't have some genetic abnormality where they can't easily get the fats and, and make use of the lipoproteins I talked about earlier, uh, either because it's a disease they were born with or it's a disease that they acquired, uh, such as something we would see you know, from advanced uh, diabetes and so forth. And that's why I wanted, I just specifically wanted to study folks who, as far as we know, have a functioning uh, lipid metabolism. It doesn't seem like there's any dysfunction to it, but yet who have enormously high levels of LDL, which we do see in the carnivore community in particular, um, when you get very, very low carb. Whether our model is correct or not, the question of risk is the one that you keep asking and that <laughs> I keep asking. You know, we're all we're all very interested in it. The data so far. I'm going to very uh, cautiously say that it's been somewhat encouraging from the anecdotal standpoint. Um, but again, I, I can't ever state enough that it's it's cautious that anecdotal data is really great for hypothesis building, but we want prospective data to, sure. to truly know what the risk levels are. Sure. So from the two camps you mentioned, um, I think the first group is that healthy user bias where, or the non-healthy user bias, I guess, in this sense is the people that tend to eat meat are also rebellious and may have other lifestyles that are not conducive to optimal health. That's probably not the people that are trying a carnivore diet. They are now trying to get um, health in their own hands by eating a low carb diet with lots of meats and saturated fats. And then they're also possibly not the people or they're actually healing from any imbalances with their fat usage, diabetes and metabolic syndromes. So then Within that community, I know that um, the way that you've labeled these people are these lean mass hyper responders. If you can maybe paint a picture of what that really means, uh, I guess what the metrics of cholesterol, um, the people that fall into this camp, uh, what their numbers tend to look like. Yes, uh, it, as it happens, I wrote the article on lean mass hyperresponders when I was uh, trying to just identify this pattern back in 2017. At the time, I did not realize it would become <laughs> so central to, um, you know, not only my life, but that it would actually end up in the literature. We've now published papers on it and so forth. But effectively, this is what I kept seeing in those earlier days of my research, which was, uh, hey, not only does my LDL go up, but also correspondingly. I tend to see my HDL go up and my triglycerides go down. So let's go ahead and talk about what each of those are so that they're kind of better identified. Typically, LDL cholesterol is often referred to as the bad cholesterol. But anybody who gets into lipidology starts getting annoyed that it's even called a good or bad cholesterol because it's it's not really a flavor of cholesterol. It doesn't have a particular molecular structure that's different from HDL. It's just the vehicle itself that it's found in. So I had mentioned before how they're getting trafficked and that there's these lipoproteins that traffic them in. Well, LDL is short for low density lipoprotein. And so that's a kind of protein that it's carried on. And it's major protein you may have heard of called ApoB. Now, not to get into that uh, too much yet, I'm just going to say that the cholesterol found in that vehicle, this is the key thing to remember, that is known as LDL cholesterol or at least at the point where it's remodeled all the way down to a, a low-density lipoprotein itself. So cholesterol found in there, that's LDL cholesterol. And then what they found when they could start differentiating these uh, with the science is that there was this other kind of cholesterol because they found there was this other kind of boat in the bloodstream, this other kind of lipoprotein that were high-density. High-density 
make may make it sound like it's big, but actually it's the other way around. High density just means it's very protein specific, a little less on the lipid side. And the cholesterol that was found associated with high density lipoproteins were associated with a low risk of cardiovascular disease. In other words, the higher the HDL, the lower the risk. And then lastly, there's triglycerides, which actually are the cargo. Triglycerides are a measure of fat in the blood, and it's the fat that's found in these lipoproteins. So if you look at that fat itself, and it tends to be lower, that tends to associate with lower cardiovascular disease. So this is where it gets a little fascinating, because if you read the literature, you find that typically all three of these go in concert in a different way than what we're going to talk about with lean mass hyperresponders. Usually, as LDL is creeping up, it seems to be alongside HDL going down and triglycerides going up. Now, LDL by itself, without any other context, tends to associate with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Again, that's without any further context, right? But also HDL being low and or triglycerides being high also associate with a higher level of cardiovascular disease. So what data do we have where LDL is high alongside the reverse, where HDL is high and triglycerides are low? And the short answer is we do have a lot of data, but it's not readily accessible and it's not commonly analyzed. I've done a bit of uh, analysis myself with NHANES. And it tends to show that indeed, um, even in the scenario where HDL is high and triglycerides are low, but you have higher LDL, it's not uncommon for it to associate with slightly more cardiovascular disease. But here's where it gets interesting. Uh, Even if that's true, though, if you look at all-cause mortality, actually all-cause mortality, there tends to be an association of of greater longevity and lower all-cause mortality when you have high LDL alongside high HDL and low triglycerides. Now, I'll again emphasize, this is epidemiological data. So we're looking at associations that doesn't really tell us enough about causation. And I don't want to suggest that that combination, those three are causally creating longevity, right? But that is kind of an important hypothesis test. Because if, if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, I think that this triad that we're seeing in the carnivore community, or for that matter, with lean mass hyperresponders, I think that it's probably likely to kill you. As a hypothesis test, we can look at the existing data that we have. Um, So yes, now I'll just jump into the couple points of lean mass hyperresponders. So back in 2017, it looked like the most extreme versions of this triad, these three in combination, I would find with people who tended to be lean and more athletic. And so I put the cut points at around an LDL cholesterol of 200 or higher, 200 milligrams per deciliter or higher, uh, HDL cholesterol of 80 or higher, and triglycerides of 70 or lower. And, and bear in mind, Judy, each of the three things I just mentioned are already very rare by themselves in isolation. Like in the enhanced data set, it's hard to find any of those, just those one markers, much less all three together. And so I was surprised then, still kind of surprised today to some extent, that we have so many people that exhibit that exact phenotype of that triad. And naturally, that's why we're so interested in them. Of the three cholesterol markers, um, just from a, a layman's term of the HDL versus LDL, the reason why LDL was considered bad was that LDL was dropping 
some of the fat all over the place, whereas HDL picks them up. From your research of all these different types of cholesterol, do you find one cholesterol over another more concerning or or is it just all in context? I, I'm. This is another place where I tend to be pretty opinionated. I want everybody to look at these things in combination. And it's. I've come to recognize something, and it's taken me years to do that. I'm an engineer. And as engineers, we just assume once we open the watch, it's going to be complicated. Once we get under the hood of the car, it's going to get complicated. We're yearning for the puzzle-solving aspect of it. But it's actually human nature to want for problems to be simple and for the solutions to those problems to be simple. And in the case of lipids and heart disease, it's such a huge, it's almost a gravitational pull. Because even the things that I've said already in in this interview, I know I may have lost some people, you know, just in talking about the boats and so forth. So it's difficult. It's difficult to kind of see these in a, a little bit more of a mechanistic way, even when trying to translate them, right? But this is a problem when you know how much these things interrelate to each other. And that's a big deal because if we're trying to look at LDL cholesterol in isolation, then we're going to have the same problem we would have with, say, BMI. If I told you that I have 10,000 studies that high BMI associates with type 2 diabetes, therefore, we should all be trying to get our BMI as low as possible. And then you come around and you say, well, wait a sec, wait a sec. Actually, for what it's worth, if you look at waist to height ratio, right, that actually tells you more. And I'm like, well, that's a lot of extra metrics. Look, I, I think we can just do fine with BMI. I've got more than enough associational data. And you go, well, but I have even stronger data. If we can look at all of these combined, I think it'll actually tell us more. I, I realize it's a bit of an oversimplification, but that really is kind of the battle I'm fighting right now. So yes, if you had to arm twist me, probably of the three metrics, I'm the most interested in triglycerides. I'd like to see triglycerides under 100 milligrams per deciliter. Really though, I like to see it alongside HDL. So I would try to arm twist back to at least look at HDL and triglycerides together. It tends to be a good proxy for insulin sensitivity. And for that matter, just how successful or not successful the turnover of those lipids are. Um, but I still think that it doesn't quite tell us as much as really every kind of metric we can get around metabolism, if that's the judgment call you're wanting to make. Um, so yeah, I I wanted to give all that reservation before giving you an answer that again, is with prejudice, right? <laughs> that's the, no. that's, that's the and, one catch that I'd want to throw in there. And and I think that's fair. And I'll, um, I'm going to go into the specific markers a little bit more in a second, but in the journal that you just uh, released not too long ago about the lean mass hyperresponders, was there anything else in terms of outcomes that was um, released in the study that has not been mentioned thus far? Which paper though? Are you talking um, about? The one, the journal, let's see, the journal of clinical lipidology, that uh, paper. Oh. Yes. So actually here's what's funny. I'm not an author on that, oh, but okay. my my good friend and collaborator, Nick Norwitz, is he's also the first author on on all of our papers. And he's just been fantastic because he, he's been able to move uh, this research into the literature for us. Yes, in that. So in that editorial, which I recommend everybody read, um, I think he strikes a great balance between what is um, our call for further research and a clinical position. So he himself is a Harvard Med student and 
you know, soon to become a doctor. So naturally, he's putting a lot of great effort in getting two very disparate sides together, right? A lot of a lot of folks in the low carb space uh, are just very comfortable with their high LDL. A lot of folks in uh, traditional medicine are very, very uncomfortable right. with high LDL. And I think Nick is just doing a, a banging, bang up job and trying to get both people, both sides very interested. And he knew that we need to put together an editorial at some point. And I couldn't be an author on it because I, I'm not an MD or, you know, or PhD or anything along those lines. Um, but I actually offered to pay out of pocket to try to make it open uh, access so that people um, in the LMHR uh, group could see it and so forth. And to be fair, because it's trying to strike that balance, it emphasizes that um, everyone should consider if they have high LDL cholesterol to take steps to lowering it. But even saying they should consider as opposed to they should or they must is already like a a surprisingly liberal version of uh, you know that kind of um, advisory position, I guess you could say. I remember seeing a talk with Dr. Tro and he was showing all the different facets of testing that people will determine, should my patient get on a statin? And a lot of them had um, looking at heart disease or higher lipid numbers from family history, um, maybe some of the metabolic syndrome, but then a lot of it was related to the LDL. And I think his outcome was in certain people, especially in the low carb space, they don't really fit into any of it, but the logic still was, well, we should still try to lower LDL. And so maybe we introduce carbs or maybe we do these other things. And the, the gap I had was, well, if they're not in any of the risk scenarios, so it's not in the family, they don't show metabolic syndrome, they're all their inflammatory markers are low, except for that LDL, and maybe they fall into the lean mass hyper responder. So the triglycerides are lower than 100 HDLs around the 70s, 80s. So why are we lowering the LDL? And that's the part that I don't get. And I get it from all the literature, there's just a higher risk with LDL. But in context, doesn't matter. I know I'm asking you the same question kind of over and over. No, but. I know it's, but this isn't, this isn't uncommon and it's, it's not a bad thing that there's a level of curiosity such that it's driving the very thing I was describing before, um, in that you're becoming more and more aware, hopefully of what the underlying mechanisms are and particularly what those risk strata are. The very things that you were describing that Dr. Cho looks at, D Dr. Cho is not super comfortable with extremely high levels yes. of LDL, right? And when I'm when I'm just with my fellow engineers, um, I can speak a little bit more plainly on I don't really even know what to classify as high or low levels because mm -hmm. that always assumes that we sort of know what it is. With engineers, it's it's kind of like um, saying, you know, uh, a high speed of car or a high speed of plane, right? And in reality, as you're kind of getting more into the, the mechanisms, you take into account, well, this, you know, compared to the speed of light, it's not really that high a speed, right? We're just, we're just, we'd like to prefer to send it out. But in the case of medicine, high or low has connotation in a lot of background and structure into what we used to associate with it. So to my low carb doctor friends, I know many who are like Dr. Tro, who, you know, if you, if you went back, say eight years to Dr. Tro and said, um, you're going to have patients in your practice who have an LDL of say 160 or 180, 
and you won't feel as compelled to give them a statin eight years from now as as you do. He would he would say that's crazy, right? right? But think about it. He considers it a huge victory to take somebody who has an LDL of like say six hundred down to one eighty, right. right? So it kind of shows how much has already changed. Okay. But that a lot of low carb doctors still, I mean, and I want to be a good scientist. They could be right that it could be there is some threshold point where at like 600, 700 or something, the lipid hypothesis kind of kicks in. But I've already kind of answered this question with Brett. For me, it's I'm more inclined to think either the lipid hypothesis is all the way right or there really is a lot more to the story such that getting back to judging what's high or low may be more mechanistic and less pathogenic, but I don't know. If you were a mass, so aside from the science, um, the, the doctor said, I've also interviewed with Dr. Brett Scherer as well. And so similar thoughts that when the LDL gets to a certain point, they're just not as comfortable. And I just wonder, is it the classical training? But if you were a lean mass hyper responder and you had let's just throw out some numbers. If you had an LDL of four or 500 and an HDL in the eighties and triglycerides under the seventies, would you change your diet? Just, this is just an N equals one. This is not you as the engineer from studying all this. Hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months. It was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, I'm going to give another disappointing answer, (laughs) which is that... I know if I answer that, it would be taken as though I'm giving advice for those folks who are in that exact situation. I can, I, I'll state this much. I'll give my my own personal context, which I've shared before. But again, with the caveat that I don't know that this is the correct course of action. Okay. Um, I've had untreated high cholesterol this entire time. I've had a number of experiments that have demonstrated how it is that I can lower my uh, LDL levels, but I think I hover somewhere in the neighborhood around 250 to 280, uh, something in that neighborhood. But here's the additional caveat that I think is a very important one, which is I recognize that this is uncharted territory alongside having very uh, frequent testing. I've already had uh, three CACs, coronary artery calcification scans, and um, two CT angiograms, which technically the CT angiograms include the CAC. So I'm kind of cheating a little bit there. But the point is, I'm not only getting very advanced heart scans, but on top of that, um, I I know the signs and symptoms to look for. Um, I'm very mindful of keeping close track of what's happening to me. And on top of that, for those folks who are like the example you gave, I, I let them know what it is because those folks, a lot of them will reach out to me and they're not necessarily, I think what, what what's going on is I think a lot of people outside the low carb community believe there's a lot of people who are carnivore, who are at the lipid levels you're talking about, and they're just entirely blase about it. They're just celebrating and they're excited <laughs> and they're high-fiving each other and so forth. And the truth is, uh, most of the folks that I know who have an LDL level in, say, the 500, 600, 700 range, they're not comfortable, but they usually have some other medical um emergency or consideration that's more on the front burner for them. 
uh, epilepsy being one of the biggest. I know at this point, I know probably about a dozen and a half at least severe epileptics who it's not even just their own personal struggle. Their whole family is struggling with whether or not they should be allowed allowing for such a high level of LDL cholesterol. And those folks, I, I, I say to them, okay, here are all the signs of homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. We are trying to keep an eye out for this in the community because we don't know what we don't know, but this is what does typically develop for those people who have the genetic disease. They tend to develop uh, eruptive or tendon xanthomas. They, there's, um, you know, development of a stable angina, for example, you might have like uh, constant chest pains, all of these things. If you have anything like this, of course, immediately see a doctor, work with a doctor, but also just consider what I'm doing, which is nothing beats the detection of the disease itself. A CAC, it turns out CACs are way better than I thought that they were, even from a few years ago. There's a, a study out of Denmark uh, that came out last year that looked at 23,000, basically everybody in Denmark that got referred to get a CT angiogram who was symptomatic. That's why they were f- referred was right. because they were symptomatic. And, and a coronary artery calci- calcium scan was actually extremely predictive uh, and highly correlative with uh, soft plaque. Because that's usually the criticism. It's a fair one that a CAC can't pick up soft plaque. But that also looked at LDL levels and it found that LDL levels had very low correlation and prognostic power, particularly where CAC was zero. And they were specifically looking at folks with an LDL of 190 or higher. Anyway, I know this is a bit of a rambling answer, but getting back to what I was saying before, I feel like it's, we can say we don't know, but here's some advice I could say would be considered, which is find out more about where you stand. You know, maybe the lipid hypothesis turns out to be true in some contexts, and maybe it doesn't turn out to be true in other contexts, but your individual state of disease is always going to be relevant to you. You're the most important end of one. And I think that's good. Um, when when I see a lipid panel and I see all the other inflammatory markers are within range, whether it's glucose, um, fibrinogen, and other markers... But if I see the LDL is very over 200 something, I will always recommend maybe you should just do an angio scan or a CAC score just in case so that you at least know at this point in time where your marker is. And then you can determine, is this the right diet for me? And then also the historical data. So I think it's a fair assessment to say it really depends on your genetics. And I think that study you mentioned in Denmark is so important to show that it's not just LDL, but it's also not to just ignore LDL because everyone sharing numbers on a carnivore diet in a Facebook group or something, we don't know their history. And so we don't know if they have any family history of heart disease or if they had metabolic syndrome before coming in and now they're showing those markers or a lot of them don't talk about their CAC score. So I just don't know enough. And that's where I will always hedge my bets as a practice and say, maybe you should get a second opinion just in case. And so I think that makes sense. The part that is always where I get so skeptical about LDL, aside from all that is, um, I think a long time ago, Peter Atia did this really long article series about um, people that had dope on cholesterol. Yes. And he showed how half of the people never had high cholesterol and they had heart disease. And so it's just, where is the truth in all of it? And or maybe not the truth, but it's just half of the people don't even have high cholesterol when they have a heart event. And so are we looking at the right thing? 
I'll, I'll actually make a very interesting okay. correction there because a lot of low carbers bring that up. And I, okay. I, I try not to correct people too much, or at least I try not to, you know, shift on behavior, but, but the study you're describing, there actually is a problem with it. Okay. The, the problem is, is getting lipid levels upon admittance into a hospital at the time of say a myocardial infarction, there's, there's a, there's a dampening effect. It brings down. Um, your lipid levels, particularly your LDL. So unfortunately, there's probably some mm-hmm. amount of which the lowering of the LDL was um, acute okay. relative to what their, um, what their uh, say, annual lipid tests were. Now that said, I'd love to see that data. I want to see right. annual lipid data. But again, we kind of come back to that original issue I was bringing up before. You know how I mentioned that typically these things move collinearly. So high LDL, if you're looking at in isolation, um, like with BMI, if you look at if you look at BMI in isolation, you're going to find higher BMI does associate strongly with type two diabetes. But is is that because a much larger proportion of the U.S. population with a high BMI are over you know visceral fat as opposed to over muscular? I yeah. think so. And that and that's an issue with looking at folks who have high LDL, especially in an environment where a you know a diet that's more uh, powered by carbohydrates and less by fat by folks who choose to live healthier can create that association. That's going to be an issue, and, and that's why we it, it all things all roads always led for me back to let's just study lean mass hypersponders. Let's look under that hood okay. because so many of them are health conscious. So many of them are um, proactively um, doing this for different reasons other than, you know, that they they themselves think that it might be healthy. And as long as they don't have, like part of our study is to be sure that they aren't smokers, to be sure that they don't have diabetes or anything along those lines. And so if it's an independent driver, if high LDL is an independent driver, our study should provide that data, but conversely. If it's not an independent driver, it should say a lot there as well. When is that study complete? Is that the year-long study that you're talking about? It is. I mean, when we say it's a year-long, it's a year-long from whenever the last person is recruited and scanned, which we're not there yet. Okay. Um, But we're getting very close. Okay. And so whenever that last person is scanned, then it'll be one year from whenever they return to get their second scan. And then we'll have what's known as longitudinal data, where you get a snapshot of data at one point snapshot data at another point, and you can then uh, compare the two. Are you changing their diet in, as part of the study? I mean, what are you? No, it's it's strictly observational. In fact, okay. that's by design. Okay. Um, it's, as you can imagine with IRB, you don't want to interventionally have people become hypercholesterolemic. Sure, right? sure. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's folks who are already refusing cholesterol medication okay. and- you know, therapy and so forth. And, um, you know, who maintain this lifestyle for a while. I know that you've done a lot of studies or, you know, just N equals ones where you know how to manipulate cholesterol right before you go in. So what is a good time to check for what may be a general summary of how your cholesterol is doing? I know there's something about coffee, maybe even adding some carbs, um, maybe some amount of fasting, but what if I really wanted to know typically where my cholesterol sits, and I know that may just be a, a loaded question, but 
When? No, I'm it... glad you're asking. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm glad you're asking because this actually comes up a lot. Anybody who's even seen like 1% of my experiments, <laughs> just 1%, by this point in time, you should be like, oh my gosh, these like taking annual lipid levels seems crazy because of just how much can be changed right. from what your activity was the few days before. So you're exactly right. And this is what I give the advice to my friends and family all the time, which is, look, if you're about to get any annual blood test, if it's infrequent, mm -hmm. but you want it to reflect what's typically going on in your life, you need to be aware of the things you're doing in the days right up to it will have an impact. I've proven this over and over and over again. So we're not built to think that way normally. Right. You know, your your friend comes in from out of town and you're getting your blood test on Monday and she wants to do shots and live like it was in college and and you stay up all night and then you have a bunch, you know, you have a cheat meal on Sunday morning. You're like, that's all right. It's, you know, it's 24 hours until my blood test happens. I'm going to tell you, don't do that <laughs> because it <laughs> it will alter a lot of the metrics that you'd be seeing in that blood work that don't reflect how your life was for the six months before that period, right? So that's one thing is to, I, I recommend eat whatever your staples are, Okay. you know, whatever your current favorite foods are, try not to overeat and try not to undereat. As best as you can, think about what your mean levels of consumption are. Then, yes, I do recommend not having coffee before the test. So if you can be water only fasted and preferably, preferably that window be 12 to 14 hours. In other words, if your last meal started at 7 p.m., then you're getting your blood test at like, let's say, 8 a.m. the next morning. That's just about perfect. And part of also why you want to do that is you want them to be very comparable to each other. Uh, if that fasting window is variable, it's it's going to affect how those lipid levels look, especially, but also other you know metabolic markers. If you don't typically fast 12 to 14 hours and then you go and give your blood work in the 12 to 14, can that affect how your cholesterol markers would look compared to typical days? Yes. Well, this is another thing I bring up. So, if, so if, let's say that you've had a fatty meal. You go to see your doctor and your doctor goes, oh yeah, let's get your blood work while you're here. This is now a new thing and something I don't love because it's really radically altered uh, feedback that we get in the groups. Because a lot of people go, wait a sec, I thought my triglycerides were going to go down going on keto. Well, no, you've literally consumed a fatty meal. Part of the process of the consumption is that you're bringing triglycerides. I just I just mentioned how this is the cargo, right? Into your into circulation so that it can get put away into your uh, fat cells, your adipocytes. That's why you want fat, you know, 12 hours of fasting is because now you've given enough time for your body to arrange putting things away. But that's also why triglycerides being high if you've been 12 hours fasted for the same reason that insulin being high if you've been 12 hours fasted is a signal to pay attention to. That's that's something you do want to catch because there's no good reason. There's no good reason for you to have a high amount of energy parked in your bloodstream. And especially if you can also see your insulin levels high as well. To me, that says there's, there's probably a, a problem. Lately, there's a trend in the carnivore community where people are eating sticks of butter and they're lowering their protein. So they're going super high fat carnivore. And so there's really no carbs. And I'm starting to see carnivores in their blood work. And I'm guessing they're 10 to 12 hours fasted. But you see that their triglycerides are now hitting 138 and 160. And it's concerning because before meeting with them, I'm absolutely certain they're eating carbs. 
And then I speak to them and they're not eating anything, but the only differentiator is that now they're adding like sticks of butter to their meal and maybe they're just having too much fat for their diet and thoughts on this. Well, I I don't know what the value of that is. One of the first things that I'm (laughs) recommending to people when they see high triglycerides, it's literally an article. In fact, I think I even know the URL, cholesterolcode.com slash high dash TG. Okay. We we go into the four biggest reasons that we see people with high triglycerides on a uh, blood test. And yes, coffee is one of them. Unfortunately, some people seem to have a sensitivity to coffee where their triglycerides are high. But another is just um, a, a higher consumption of liquid or refined forms of fat. It's not, I mean, I I honestly, I'm not sure what the logic is behind having sticks of butter unless you're Unless you're trying to induce a higher level of ketones, is that kind of the idea behind it? Because you can create more of an overage of ketones. I've done it myself. I've shown this, which is why, by the way, I also push back on, I think people would try to chase ketone levels. I'm like, it's an energy substrate, just like glucose, right? Right. Like you wouldn't go, oh, awesome. I'm in, I'm in great glucose territory because my glucose is now up to 200 because I've been, you know, consuming goose or something like that. No, no, no. That's, that's again, not a good reason for a lot of energy to be parked in your bloodstream, especially after being fasted. So I don't, liquid and refined forms of fat, you can consume more of because we don't have a lot of practice. Our, our digestive system, our endocrine system, it has 2.5 million years of uh, our ancestors dealing with very fibrous forms of um, carbs and uh, fat and protein that we had to work really hard through animal bone structure and skinning and all that stuff. This is a brand new scenario where we can actually refine it way down and our digestive system doesn't have to do hardly anything. Our enterocytes can just like literally get it and they're passing it along and our endocrine sure. system's like, wow, we already have like so much more. We didn't give you, we didn't get as much chance to give you a lot of satiety signaling. Right. And I, I worry sometimes I feel like sometimes the low carb community can feel like there's not a refined form of fat that can be comparable to a refined form of carbohydrate. But I certainly am concerned about that. Yeah, I think the reason for the high fat, and I'm not a big fan of this whole um, high fat with butter either, especially because most butter is processed and pasteurized and homogenized. But um, I think it's because a lot of women specifically are um, have under ate their whole lives or have had malnutrition and they're hypothyroid. So a lot of the logic is if you support the steroid hormones by eating sufficient cholesterol and you reduce your cortisol load, then that will support your hormones. And so I think a lot of people are jumping on that bandwagon. Maybe they were eating very lean meats for a long time. You know, the whole protein sparing modified fast was popular for a while where it was super lean protein without any fat as well. And I think it's just this shift because people are having hormonal issues or thyroid issues. And instead of wanting to uh, turn to carbs, they're saying, okay, maybe we just jump on this high fat, um, I guess, bandwagon. And so people are starting to sleep better at night, but I don't, and they're all they're doing is looking at the A1C and glucose markers because A1C Mm. tends to go up on carnivore. And so they're like, look, my glucose is going down. My ketones are rising. So therefore I'm healthier. But and maybe they're feeling a little bit more energy because they're not just eating protein. And but what I'm seeing is most of these people don't see the other blood work. And I'm seeing it in practice where people are sharing their blood work with me, or we get their blood work, and I'm seeing triglycerides go up in abnormal markers. And sometimes I'm even seeing the antibodies of thyroid go up. And it makes sense if people are sensitive to dairy, 
Um, and it's just interesting because there's always these fads, but um, oftentimes it's not ideal for us. Yeah. So this is another position I have that could probably be considered somewhat controversial, but frankly, okay. it just makes the most mechanistic sense. A lot of lean mass hyperspotters see this as well, where they see that their fasting glucose levels go up and their A1C goes up. By right. up though, I don't mean to like 6.5, right, A1C right. is 6.5 and their fasting glucose is like 140. I mean, like their fasting glucose might be 100 right. or even 105 and their A1C may be like say 5.7 or 5.8 quickly jumping to the conclusion that they're, you know, developing diabetes, that they're actually going towards type two diabetes. And I try to stick to just lipids because that's already a big enough controversial mountain to climb. Right. But the engineer in me has to, I have to point this out because it's just, it honestly, honestly kind of drives me crazy. You put a CGM on these same folks, continuous glucose monitor, right. and it's flat as a board. Right, right? right. The only time it's probably the highest is typically in the morning. Uh, right around the dawn phenomenon effect. Um, but I tend to find, and this makes sense to me, that it tends to correlate, especially more to those folks who are exercising in the morning. Mm -hmm. So if you're a morning runner, if you go to morning workouts, it seems systemically like there's some amount of priming of, of the pump that perhaps even the, uh, the liver to some extent might even be uh, exercising a little bit more glycogenolysis. That's just a hypothesis. But regardless, if I see a CGM that's flat alongside a perpetual low insulin level, so the insulin is low and alongside the low insulin levels, take these things, these two in combination. And to me, it is just, it just kills the concept of this being a dysregulation right. of glucose metabolism, which is what diabetes is, right? You, you have both of these things in perfect concert. That's a very tight delta. That, that to me looks like homeostasis. That looks like the body has very tight control over its glucose levels. And there's something called the Randall cycle, which uh, discusses why it is that fat and glucose have a kind of natural competition within cells, which they should, uh, because it keeps them from being uh, inefficient. Well, if you're very fat adapted, systemically, it makes perfect sense that you would have a greater affinity for fatty acids for cells that can use the fatty acids sparing glucose for, you know, uh, for red blood cells, or yes, possibly even to the brain to some extent, but in particular, also to some degree as a kind of a buffer towards existing skeletal muscle and possibly even cardiac muscle. Regardless, it's not even that much when you're talking about a glucose of being, um, you know, 90 as being much more acceptable. And then you're saying, oh no, it's, it's 105. This is very unacceptable. If you look at it for, in terms of grams, it's so radically different. Again, if you look at the CGM, it looks entirely different from somebody who has either type one or type two diabetes. We're going to, we're going to see all the peaks and valleys and everything that's going all over the place. So anyway, I'm sorry to go on that rant, but this does kind of drive me nuts sometimes as uh, an engineer, because I, myself, had those proxy metrics that kind of brought me to this space, but as I felt like I kind of understood it better, I, I'd love to do an RCT on on lean mass hyperresponders and um, particularly the development of, of type two diabetes, which I'm I would bet a sizable amount of my net worth. I don't think that they're developing, and some folks, by the way, think it's the other way around that they're actually developing that that if you're very carnivore and you have very low levels of insulin 
that they're on their way to developing type one diabetes to where it's insulin insufficiency. Right. Again, that that. too, I, (laughs) I, I don't, I, I know just because of the nature of the work that I'm doing, I know a lot of people, especially epileptics who've been keto long before we ever heard the word keto or even heard about ketones, right? Those folks should be like the bellwethers of catastrophe if they were to either develop type 2 diabetes or, you know, cardiovascular disease, but that's, you know, for another time. Some some of them I'm kind of wanting to come out and do some of uh, some research with us because even though they have uh, confounding, having another disease, of course, is is a confounder. Sure. Um, These are some of the longest long-termers, but one of them I know is very athletic, uh, feels like keto gave him back his life. Right. I think he's been keto something like 13 years, 14 years. And he also, he has like an A1C of, I want to say 5.8. Um, and I think his fasting glucose is around a hundred and yeah. has been, has been for like a decade. <laughs> right. That, that's, what's crazy about it. So. I, 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 you know, I, we'll just have some real talk right now. Um, I work with mostly carnivores and I see the same thing. So blood sugars in the nineties, um, and then they'll wear CGMs only because for some reason they're waking up in the middle of the night. So maybe there is some blood sugar dysregulation. And then we see there's really no issues with their blood sugar. And then they get their A1C and it's above 5.5. And then they see people on social media saying, oh, I've been carnivore for X amount of years and my blood sugar is in the seventies. Or because we're keto adjacent where we are still eating way more meat and we're not chasing ketones, a lot of the keto... I guess, advocates or doctors, their blood sugars in the 60s, you know, Don D'Agostino shares his ketone or his blood sugar, and it's often in the 60s. And he's been doing it for so long. And he's a keto expert. And I think then people in the carnivore space think, oh, no, I'm in the 90s and close to 100s. And so therefore, I'm doing something wrong. Now my cholesterol's going up. Um, The rest of the world already thinks I'm crazy on this diet. So therefore, this A1C is indicative of I'm unhealthy. And when we use a CGM, like you just said, there's no movement. And it's pretty much within 20 milligrams deciliters after meals. And it's okay. But I really think, honestly, there's a lot of fear mongering online because we expect 80s and, uh, milligrams per deciliter or anything below that is considered normal and healthy. But I mean, it's interesting to me that most carnivores will argue the cholesterol levels of, hey, I'm in the LDLs of 200 and above, and that's great as long as my triglycerides are low and my HDL is above a certain amount. But when it comes to A1C, we're still having that battle where now people are questioning, well, I don't have many ketones when I wake up in the morning and my blood sugar is in the 95, 100s. Maybe I'm so unhealthy and now I need to add carbs. And, and then there, some people will add carbs and then in a month, their blood sugar goes down to the seventies and they're like, see, I was unhealthy, even though it makes no logical yeah. sense other than that their blood sugar has dropped, but they're not sleeping any better. They're, they didn't lose any weight. It was just, they're chasing the A1C and blood glucose for no logical reason other than they've heard these other norms out there that they should be hitting. Yeah. And I look I love numbers. Obviously, I not only have I I've had 140 blood tests for goodness sakes, oh my right? Goodness. And the yeah, since November 2015. And <laughs> I uh you know, we run a blood testing service, right? right but right. the but that said, I'll go back to what I said before. 
nothing beats the actual detection of disease. Mm -hmm. This isn't just cardiovascular disease, right? This is any kind of a, of a dysregulation um, that is evident. So I look for things like homeostasis in the new context, which is what we're in. It's perfectly fine to acknowledge that there may be diseases we have yet to find, sure. which literally can come from the carnivore diet. I bring this up with lean mass hyperresponders. It could be that we find that they are in fact low risk for cardiovascular disease, but it turns out that there is something else that um, they're at a higher risk for that we just didn't know about at this time, right? I, I think any good scientist has got to be able to do that. Yeah. However, it is it is a challenge when the markers basically in people's minds become the disease. Mm. That's a fascinating and Honestly, sometimes this is just another, I think just it's different than an engineer culture. It, it, us engineers, we're used to par paradigms being torn down every minute, right? Constantly. We can't wait to find out what the next thing is that's going to get entirely reinvented and change the way we look at whatever it is that we're looking at. Um, and in the case of things like A1C and fasting glucose, it doesn't even take that much work. Um, glucokinase... Uh, I think is what it's called. There's a, a loss of function, something like that with glucokinase. We're sure enough folks who have a difficult time uh, metabolizing glucose will have elevated glucose levels. Okay. But it's not pathogenic in the same way as diabetes. And so what do they do? They study them to find out if they have the same um, pathologies. Do they have the same symptoms and the same issues? And they don't. They don't, right? This is why I was interested in something called uh, uh, glycogen storage disease. So the lipid energy model, the model I was describing from before, um, what activates the greater amount of trafficking of fats we posit, this is the hypothesis, is a lower standing level of glycogen stores in the liver as one major initiator of the cascade. So what's happening okay. in the liver is going, oh, we're low, we're low on stored glucose. We need to activate more lipolysis in, in the periphery so that we get that more circulation, right? Well, so having a disease that basically simulates that is great. And that's what glycogen storage disease is because folks with this, and there's many different types, but folks of like, for example, 1A, they have high levels of lipids, especially LDL. And they don't have what I was describing before, a dysfunctional lipid metabolism. So dysfunctional lipid metabolism resulting in high LDL has more of an association with cardiovascular disease. But what about high levels of lipids without a dysfunction in lipid metabolism? Well, that's what glycogen storage disease was. And that was why it was one of the first things I went to go find when I was starting this research was I was like, well, wait, if it's independently um, developing uh, atherosclerosis by having high LDL, then that's what we can look to. And that's where glucokinase um, is a great thing to look at for this exact reason. Is it really the higher glucose levels? Is that the disease or is it the dysregulation itself? And of course, I'm, I'm going to lean into the, don't get me wrong. You can, there's definitely too high levels of glucose. You know, you can get into the different glutes and, and at what levels that becomes very pathogenic and so forth. It's just, again, I think it's worth also making a distinction between exactly what you described, a 90 and a 100 or 105 versus extraordinarily high levels where you might actually see more of that activation. Right, right. From all your work with all this cholesterol, do you have 
preferable fats. Um, you know, there's people in the wellness space, especially in the low carb that love saturated fats. And then there's some that love the monounsaturated. And then there's people that lately are really scared of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Do you have a fat that you prefer? <laughs> well, I definitely have a very high saturated fat diet. Um, but when I say high, I mean high by uh, conventional dietary advice okay. standards, right? So I think it's I think it's probably I don't know thirty five percent or forty percent. Basically, okay. what would just happen to occur if I were having ribeyes and eggs right. and things along those lines, right? I do think that there's a distinction to be made in that some folks take seed oils and linoleic acid and then sort of just apply it to all PUFAs. But bear in mind that, you know, the PUFAs yes. include omega-3s and, and things along those lines. So there's some degree with which I think that we should have PUFAs. Right. Where this gets a little interesting to me that I do think about probably more than most people do in this space on exactly what you're talking about with these fatty acid compositions mm -hmm is how much need versus production we have to do endogenously within our body. I do think it's a dose makes the poison on the proportionality. So if I was consuming only PUFAs, I know for a fact that my cells are not, the, the bilayers of my cell walls are not made, the, the fatty acids that are esterified to the phospholipids, sorry, geek alert, they're not all PUFAs because right, right. they need to have a certain degree of stiffness, which comes predominantly from the saturation, especially saturated fats. They can't be just saturated fats. There, there needs to be arachidonic acid and a whole lot of other uh, acid types that are important for cell function. So this is where I'm going to sound like a carnivore advocate, not intentionally because I know people <laughs> who thrive on other diets, right? But there's something to be said about eating animals for the mechanistic laziness of it. Okay. which, which I'll explain, um, it, plants, you know, they have their own genome, they're doing their own encoding and they have a different complement of amino acids because they have different priorities, right? The things that they're encoding for, I like, I like to think of ribosomes, which make our proteins. I like to think of them as 3d printers. And I like to think of, um, amino acids as like the color, the color toner of each of the different, right? So, so how much of the toner they use is based on, um, what uh, proteins we're synthesizing. So I think it's lysine, for example, we use a much higher amount of lysine than plants do, right? And animal kingdom does more than plants do. I may be wrong about that. I got to fact check myself later, but- No, lysine is low in plants and same thing, I think with methionine, but go ahead, right. go on. Right, I, and I'm not a nutritionist, so full disclosure there. But look, if I'm consuming something that has the same protein synthesis prioritization complements that I do as a human, hey, it's it's like an easier in to meet the ribosome toner cartridge uh, uh, values, right? I, as much as I love lipids, it's scary how complex the protein management is within our cells because we don't have a pool. Even though I talk about these toner cartridges per se of, of amino acids, there's not a, an amino acid distribution system the same way that there is for uh, fatty acids to the same degree, right? There's not a pool. You know, we have uh, adipose tissue as a pool for our stored uh, forms of fat in, in the form of triglycerides. We have muscle and liver for um, glycogen. And guess what? It doesn't have to have a huge variety to it, right? Protein does though. And amino acids, the amino acids that make them up do, and we're going to be using them. And this is where 
it does make it just easier on net, right? This isn't me specifically putting my stamp of approval on carnivore, but it becomes important for something like what I'm describing to bring it back to the fatty acid composition. I think it's hard to overconsume a particular type of fat without, you know, some kind of help, some kind of like processed oils. And in that sense, yeah, I'm not going to have a diet with a lot of processed oils, for example, if it tends to lean into a complement that's very different from animals. And to that extent, yeah, like I don't, I'm not highly evasive of seed oils to the same degree as my, you know, as say Tucker Goodrich would be. <laughs> but that said, I, it's not a staple in my diet per se. And if I were a rich super geek, I'd be doing regular biopsies because I'd be curious how much my diet is affecting things like my, you know, the bilayers of my cells and various tissues. That means I would have a whole lot of possible scarring and so forth. But hey, I've already gone this far with my N of one experiments, right? Like, whatever. <laughs> I think there's a German test that goes all the way down to mitochondrial testing, and they can see your biphosphate lipid layer of the omega three and six. Um, I think it's really expensive too. So I do I don't know, I think it's blood work that they get that data, but um, they can see your level of the omega threes and omega sixes. Um, I also interviewed Dr. I'm forgetting his last name, but it's Bill something. And he holds, he runs a lab on um, omega-3 and 6 testing. And he basically says, even if you eat all omega-6 foods, it's not like your blood cells will now just be omega-6. Uh, there will be a fine balance that your body tries to do until disease is imminent. So I, I agree with you. I think if we eat seed oils and these oils that are processed, it's not ideal, but I don't think it's just the little amount that we do have that's causing all this illness. I think it's, um, yes, avoid as much as possible. But if there's a little bit in your diet, it's not, I don't think it's the thing that's breaking people to be sick, um, specifically because our bodies can regulate if there's some amount inside our system. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think it's a dose makes the poison. Yeah. Kind agreed. Of thing. I agree. I agree. I, I believe more than I ever have that much of the disease we're only going to really get a handle of when we better understand the breakdown of signaling. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not just what we're consuming. It's at the point where the, the different organs in play, right. particularly the liver. I mean, the more you learn about the liver, the more you're like, it's, it's the straight laced metabolic brain right. partner that puts up with our guff, right? <laughs> it's like, Oh, I have to detoxify this now too. All right. right. And it doesn't, it doesn't complain. It's, it's surprisingly very forgiving, but I describe this a lot when it comes to things like uh, fatty liver, we have, a, we have a lot of analogies when it comes to uh, systems thinking inside of software development. And one of my favorite analogies to try to give a sense of um, a system that has a central server that's doing sampling is to think of a shop where there's a line on the inside of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how much you're going to pull people from the back to help you up front has a lot to do with how long the line is getting. And then, you know, you're eventually going to get on the intercom and call more people up to help with the cashiers, et cetera, right? But the problem is when the line goes out the door, now you don't know if the line is, you know, how a far? couple of people back or if it's like five blocks back. Right. That that concept is actually very important 
and why I believe it's easily explained how if somebody even loses, like say, you know, 10 pounds, all of a sudden they're so much healthier because I don't think that those 10 pounds represented all of their problems. I think those 10 pounds represented that necessary capacity to bring back signaling capability for the rest of their, like their endocrine system and all everything that's a part of it, because now the liver can see a little bit better, can sample a little bit better, and it can uh, gauge a lot of things, um, liver being just one of the components, right? But the But my larger point just being that I do worry about how anything that we overconsume that's not ancestrally connected in some fashion. And again, I do emphasize overconsume because I certainly consume a lot of things that are not ancestrally con- connected, right? But I do try to have staples if I can that I know are going to feed the good parts of my body, keep that system rolling. I think that's good. It, it makes a lot of sense. If you lose some of the weight or if the line shortens, you will have more signaling because there's just less burden on all the various systems and organs in the body. So there's less noise to have to um, go through to just have the body function properly. And I think that makes so much sense, especially if you have weight to lose. Um, well, it's I, a gauging. It's a gauging thing. I Sorry, I, I did mean it more for the signaling value, right? Okay. So it's, it's, it's at the point where it could be like, okay, there's nine people in the line as opposed to 12 people. I know I need this many people when there's nine people. I know I need this many people when there's 12 people. Oh, I just need this going around the clock when it's just outside the door, right? When you have a whole bunch of different components that are just working endlessly, right? Like that's what I imagine hyperinsulinemia really is, Mm -hmm. is it's, it's signaling to everything. There's no closing hours. You're just going to have to. And so, so it's not just that they're working around the clock. It's that their capability of coordinating with each other in some fashion has also broken down. Um, and that's why I brought it back to signaling. So no, that anyway. makes sense because you can't see what's outside. And so it's just, you just have to keep burning. Um, so I, I, that makes a lot of sense from what you're saying. Then do you prioritize protein since it sounds like we can store fat, we can store glucose or glycogen or protein. I mean, there's just that limited amount and we can't really store a lot of it. Do you then prioritize protein? I'm in the control group of diet (laughs) in that while everybody is really obsessed right now with whether it should be about this much fat versus (laughs) this much protein. And, and there's literally some online war going on. I'm like, well, I just like cheeseburger. (laughs) patties and just eat that. I don't really put a lot of thought into just how much I've hit either one. Um, I, again, as much as I like to follow the numbers, might be surprised at how many times somebody's giving me a full manifest of things. And I'm like, and how are you feeling? Like, does this, this thing that you've now adopted that you're eating because it's got this, this, and this that you heard online is important for X, Y, and Z. Does it make you feel better? Like maybe that's great if it makes you feel better, right? But I, I'm sure you run into this. There's unfortunately a lot of people who will pursue a diet or pursue it, you know, different items. Liver is a great example. I mean, liver is definitely nature's superfood. It is a multivitamin. But I know a lot of people who really don't like liver who try to make themselves eat liver. And I'm like, why? You don't, right. you don't have to eat it. Right. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think sometimes when we try to get healthy, we start going, we swing the pendulum too far. And then we're just like 
just tell me what exactly I need to do to live forever, not have any more disease. And we stop trusting the body when our body's biofeedback is the best way to know if something is working or not. And if it's not working, then you may be able to pull some levers, but no one's going to have the answer exactly for you. Um, No one knows your history, your metabolic history and your genetics. And so that's where I always try to put the power back to the people of, well, how do you feel? Like you said, and it sounds like that's where, you know, if I were to say to you uh, for the people that are watching this, if you had any type of recommendations with diet or with their cholesterol, is it ultimately, you know, how you feel and maybe some of the markers and where they're moving, but generally are you, do you feel like you're healing on this diet? Is that your recommendation? Of course, of course. I love, I mean, in general, a lot, a lot of times when somebody comes to me and they say, look, I'm really worried about my high cholesterol. Um, but your research is very encouraging for me, but I just, I can't seem to, I don't know. I feel like maybe I should add some carbs and I go, if you feel like maybe you should add some carbs, add some carbs, right? Like if you can metabolize it well, if you're stress, if you're stressing about anything, whatever that thing is, it's probably good to, if if it's an easy thing to change, to just go ahead and change that thing. Right. Right. Like there's no, there's, I, I try to emphasize to uh, even close friends of mine that there's nothing that they can do that's going to impress me quite like taking their own health into consideration and finding where it is, you know, whatever gets them to sleep better at night, right? So I've had the reverse. I had some folks who've been like, look, I've been trying to do all these things to, you know, lower my LDL to make my mom happy, to blah, 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 blah. And then eventually I just stopped telling her what my levels were. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm uh, afraid to tell her what the latest bad test is. I'm like, or you could just talk to her about where you feel the most comfortable. Right. It's your, it's your health. Work with your doctor. Work, work with your family. But at the end of the day, it's, it's you. You're the one who decides. And so the stress component, along with how you're genuinely feeling, has to stay on the table. That has to stay in view. People. I, it shouldn't even need to be said, right. but I find I say it a lot to people because I feel as though the level of passion in this community and in any diet community, it's great. The level of belonging and a sense of camaraderie, fantastic. But always keep your health in full view and recognize just how often it happens that people have to make changes and tweaks that are individual to them. If I can just say my my dad is such a great example. My dad has to be full-blown, I'm saying like under 25 gross carbs or his insulin levels will get out of control. His A1C will get to like six, 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 eight, whatever. He, he has to be keto and it sucks for him in the sense that there's other members of my family who are perfectly fine with 60 grams of carbs or 80 grams of carbs and who can cheat a little bit more and it doesn't have like longer lasting effects on it, right? That kind of thing. Um, but, but for him, it helped him to know that for me, I would work with wherever it was he could land. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to say too much what we worked out, but we worked out something where we were both happy enough, but I've always recognized that at the end of the day, it's about what, what he chooses for himself, but that I didn't want him to stress too much about where I stood. And that's, that can be a challenge, right? Because people will feel like they need to be militant to adhere to a particular diet or to please a particular person and how they should perform in that diet. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's got to be your choice. It's got to be what you feel 
makes you feel the happiest. Yeah. I love that. Um, I, I, I always say to people, um, that there's no carnivore award at the end of who was the hardest carnivore, the strongest carnivore, the most perfect carnivore. It's ultimately finding what works for you and what allows you to stay consistent. I mean, you could try to be carnivore perfectly for a month and then you fall off because you've been maybe vying for some type of carbohydrate and then you binge and eat all of these carbs, which are not ideal. So if it means that maybe you have five grams or 10 grams of carbs, and that allows you to stay more consistent with your diet, I think that is more important than saying I'm part of the carnivore club and I'm doing it perfectly because ultimately, like you said, it's your health and it's, you're the one that has to live in your body, whether there's pain or whether there's not, and it shouldn't be a extreme external validation because that will end. And so ultimately, I mean, this whole summit is supposed to be just giving the support where people can put their wellness in their own hands, but also trust their own body's biofeedback. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, and that's why, like at the end of the day, I'm just going to say many times over as much as I love these numbers, as much as I like uh, the science that's behind all of this, you know, the number one device to be keeping an eye on is how you feel. <laughs> and it sounds so cliche. It sounds kind of woo, but right. actually we have some very sophisticated feedback built right. into us. One of the things that I ha- I find I personally have to get better about is I try to be aware a lot of uh, my gut, particularly um, around say the belly button area and just below the end that the more the experiments helped to kind of illuminate this for me mm. was certain experiments that induce certain outcomes you become more aware of it when you're the one who initiated the experiment so when people fall off their diets oftentimes it's very difficult to know for sure that the diet had part uh, of an impact on like say your stress levels or the difficulty you were dealing with like let's say you go to visit family it's a stressful time and you just kind of fall off your diet and you eat a whole bunch of things. And uh, it was actually just a very rough, intense period of time. You don't consider the possibility that what you ate actually contributed to that being a stressful time. You think, oh, it was stressful. I was already stressed, like coming to it. Right. But actually I find that I can feel the effects of gut plus bad food, or sorry, I could feel the effects of stress plus uh, bad food in my gut more than if I just have bad food for an experiment, right? Um, for And bad food is kind of a big category. I can name the experiments at another time when we have more time. But the point being is that I'm kind of impressed at how much of a feedback loop there is um, that I can get from like the, um, the, the hind portion of uh, the small intestine, or at least what's around that area. I don't pretend to know every aspect of it. It's just, I find that the more I'm aware of that, the more it helps me correct against what uh, I should be eating or shouldn't be eating. I'll just put it that way. That makes sense. Um, In our nutritional therapy school, we did, it's kind of like muscle testing. It's not exactly, but we would press upon the belly button area. And it was a, if you think about um, around the belly button, if this is your belly button, uh, we would press in quadrants. And if you had any sensitivities there, that was your small intestine needing support. So it absolutely makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, and it's, it's funny because again, only, only doing these experiments, these NM1 experiments, do I kind of come into this awareness, which is why I just advocate for everybody to consider. Yeah. I love it. You know, doing that. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I love everything you brought up and I never would have thought, um, even from all the times I've met you, even in person, I just never would have thought that you would say trust your own body, but I love that. I, I absolutely love that. Um, where can people learn more about the studies you've published? Um, I know you have your cholesterol code. Is that calculator still uh, back online yet? Um, I don't know, but where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, a few things. One, of course, as far as the papers, uh, you could go to cholesterolcode.com slash papers. Okay. Uh, cholesterolcode.com. It's funny, that was the blog that we got rolling to get everything up and going, but I'm actually gonna have to do a post soon to just say that we're going to leave it up as an information hub. Um, however, I don't update like I used to because of the amount of responsibility I have in these other uh, things. So sure. the other two things are ownyourlabs.com, which is our blood service um, where you know people can uh, order blood work privately. But in particular, probably the biggest um, thing that's a focus is the uh, the foundation, citizensciencefoundation.org mm-hmm. is what we're running the lean mass hyperresponder study out of. And again, I'm excited because I think we're getting very close to uh, connecting to the end of that. And of course, the Twitter, Thanks. I'm very <laughs> active on Twitter is real Dave Feldman. <laughs> it's fun, like, right. It's funny. Right. As I had said that about the study, an email had just popped up from one of the key people in the study. And I think that that kind of, it, because are. of the timing of it, it kind of threw me off in that moment. So that was sort of ironic. No, that's good. Um, I've seen your lab. Um, I think one of my clients brought it up. They love how you can basically pick lab work a la carte, and then you can just pick what uh, re- blood work you want to see. And I love that because a lot of providers will not do blood work, especially if you bring up C peptide and they will ask, why do you want to test that? But instead of dealing with that headache or having to deal with your doctor, you can just go on there, pay a few dollars and get that tested. And I think it's an awesome service you're providing the community. So thank you for that. Thanks. I mean, really, it started because both Siobhan and I were just getting so many tests Mm -hmm. and people kept asking, you know, how can we do it? Eventually, we're like, we'll just we'll just put it into a platform and put it up on. And yeah, we actually have a fixed we have a fixed markup where my whole partnership goes to the uh, Citizen Science Foundation. Okay. So all, you know, the proceeds, especially on my end, go in that direction. But the more people are ordering from it, the more it actually drives our prices down. We don't keep the difference because it's fixed. Right. And so it's, it's we're kind of like the big customers who just manage the shop, if that makes sense. Right. And right. that's why like, I, I like it because I want people to be able to get an insulin test for like 12 bucks. Sure. That's great because I wish I could have done that back then. Right. So yeah, I, I love that because we're helping to facilitate, hopefully, you know, the next wave of citizen scientists. We'll see. Yes. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was amazing. And I hope that people just understand a lot more about cholesterol and its context. And it's not just that your LDL is high or not. It's there's a lot more context to that. So thank you again for joining me today. Yes. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you for having me on. Okay, guys, I hope that this interview gave you just more information around cholesterol. I know that we really just want an answer of is LDL at a certain number safe or not? And I personally think that based on certain markers in context with your LDL, it will depend on if you should be concerned or not. This is where sometimes it is better to work with a provider or practitioner to understand your blood markers. I think it's also important to consider where is your CAC score, and lots of other things that Dave and I had talked about. I wish there was a simple answer to go, this marker means that you're safe, and this means that, but 
It just simply would be doing a disservice to the community to say that this is the way or this one thing means this, because it really depends on context. I hope that I try to ask many questions to give you a more well-rounded answer to cholesterol and that you can ultimately make the decision of if this diet is working for you and is working for you for the long term. I hope that this conversation gives you more assurance or knowledge around the area of cholesterol and what it means for heart disease. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat and take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.